Welcome in to a new Buff Stampede Radio. Adam Lester Tiger, the publisher of BuffStampede.com. Again, joined by Forever Buff, Ryan Miller. Ryan, we were chatting a little bit before we hit record here. Uh, uh, like you, you had said here, that, that this was a much-needed win for Colorado. Obviously, they get uh, a double overtime victory over Oregon State. And a little bit different feeling after this win than the previous wins. You know, the first one was over an FCS program. And the other was over an Arizona program that came into that game with a super long losing streak. This Oregon State team, uh, you know, not not a juggernaut by any stretch, but but a pretty good football team. I absolutely agree with you. Some validation, finally, I think, for a program that has been searching for a little bit of identity. And I think wanting some some uh, acceptance you know, to, to see what has actually been happening. We've actually been in, been doing better. There's been an increase in productivity. When's it finally going to show? I think, you know, I think us as fans got to see that box checked uh, this weekend in a game that I'm still catching my breath from. So. Nice. Uh, Jarek Broussard finally gets a chance to go off in that football game. 151 rushing yards against the Beavers. That jumped him up eight spots on CU's all-time rushing list from 43rd to 35th on Saturday. And he's only going to move up even more on that list list here going forward. You know, I I think Jarek had to be frustrated earlier this year. It's tough when you're not getting the blocking that you want as a back. And, you know, it, it, it kind of trickled down from the passing attack, not being able to make plays to the offensive line struggles to Jarek Roussard. But it, it, it seems like slowly but surely those pieces are kind of coming together offensively. Yeah, we're starting to put some drives together. Um, all year we've talked about consistency, right? And having something up front that we can count on and, and being consistent with, with who's going to be up there and where the blocks need to be. And a lot of viewers, I don't think, really understand how impaired it is because you build you build that connection. Now he knows exactly where – or he's got a really good idea of how those linemen are going to pull a block, what a linebacker is going to do based off of, of certain, certain double teams. And he's hitting holes – with a little bit more anticipation now instead of kind of waiting to see what's going to open up. And it's only going to get better, I think, out of that. He's a smart back with good vision. And you can see that he's hitting those holes with a little bit more vigor and the vision. He's turning turning creases into seams, turning them into, into good breakaway runs, which hasn't been there. And now it's starting to open up and we're getting to, we're getting to reap the benefits, I, I absolutely believe. William Vallejos and grad assistant Donovan Williams are certainly pushing the right buttons with that offensive line. I just want to get your overall thoughts. We haven't done a podcast since in a couple of weeks. We, we didn't do one after the Oregon game, and certainly the offensive line showed improvement in that game as well after Mitch Rodriguez was fired. Uh, well, what are your thoughts on what that offensive line has done here the last two weeks? Yeah, to revisit that Oregon game, there were a couple of series in there where I was so proud to play back there. I mean, you look at those guys and the way that they were blocking up front, making good blocks, making good assignment choices, and having some grit and having some nasty. And then it transferred over to this week for sure. We put some drives together, and it wasn't just, you know, a lucky 
lucky long run and a, and a pitch and a catch. It was, let's put a couple of drives together, six, seven, eight, you know, finally up to, you know, 10 play drives where it's, you're getting it done and you're pounding the rock. You're getting the defense, the rest that they need, and you're establishing a presence up there. I was very happy with our performance the past two weeks and to have uh, Jared go off as well. That's, that's a ton of stuff, a ton of reward that the offensive line, I think, has been taking a ton of heat. And I've been giving a ton of heat to the O-line, but mm-hmm. I, just like I was given, you know, given a little uh, little pinches and punches here, you know, at the same time, I'm going to clap my hands for them this week because they got it done. Given that that offensive line group dealt with a coaching change a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to pick your brain and get – your, your thoughts on what it's like as a player to, to go through a coaching change. I th- I'm sure you went through more of those than you, you thought you were going to when you came out of high school. Uh, I think it was three different offensive line coaches that you had in college, right? Well, I was recruited by Borber. I want to say Dave Borberly um, or Borbs. Um, played for played under Jeff Grimes. Uh, Brad Bedell was a grad assistant when Grimes took off. And we had Denver Johnson and Steve Marshall also. Um, and that's just at the position coach. So yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, you, you obviously want to hang your hat on one guy and have him be the one that can steer the ship in that direction. It's, it's interesting, you know, when coaches change to leave versus when they're asked to leave. But I think it reveals a maturity level of the guys in that in that meeting room or in that locker room. Um, it's not easy, but I definitely think it could be a catalyst for good things. Uh, the guys really realize that they have to lean on each other. And that's, that's what we did is when I was playing is you get a coaching change, whether it's he lives, leaves for something else or, or again, they get asked to leave. You just, you got to grin and bear it. And you know that the guys next to you are the only guys that, that understand it. So I think, I can think it can be a very good thing if you have the maturity level of some senior leadership to kind of steer that ship instead. And I don't want to pile on Mitch Rodriguez because other people are already doing that. Uh, but when you look at what that offensive line group did through, what was it, nine games, and then you compare that with what they've done the last two weeks, I mean, you've got to assume that something was wrong with that dynamic, right? I mean, otherwise it doesn't make sense to me. I was never a fan of the rotating, the rotating series. Uh, you know, I think that was made pretty prevalent by our previous podcast. I don't think I ever want to yeah. say that tongue twister ever again. But it, if it isn't working, you need to fix something. And I'm not against rotating players, but maybe the first three games, and then find your five, find your six and put it in stone. If somebody shows the ability to to step up and, and take one of those spots, then good for him. But that needs to be done in practice. Uh, when you get later on in the season, you, you need to have that that transparency and, and the cohesion on the, on the line. And I think I think this how we've seen them play kind of answered that question for us. If, yeah. if that was a good thing or if it was a, a poor thing. Um, but I definitely liked what we saw out of the, the starting five these past two weeks. 
we've spent so much time talking about the offensive line and for good reason here in recent podcasts, but we need to spend a little bit of time on these young skill guys. You look at receiver and Brennan Rice has really stepped stepped up. Monte Chenault is back in the mix. Uh, he, he got called on that holding penalty where Rice scored late, uh, and that was a beautiful block by Monte Chenault. Montana Lamonius Craig then catches a touchdown pass there. Chase Penry's made some nice catches. Ty Robinson's made some plays. He caught a touchdown pass in that Oregon game. And then on the other side of the ball, in the secondary, you got to be pretty excited about the future there. Trevor Woods, a beautiful pass breakup. He's just a, a playmaker. I remember his high school film. It was like the first three minutes of it were just pick six after pick six after pick six. So he was doing that in high school. He's been a playmaker here in, in limited action as a true freshman at CU. Uh, Tyron Taylor, Nico Reed, Kalen Moore, cornerback. There's a lot of young skill talent in this program. And uh, I know we haven't wanted to make youth as an excuse for when this team was struggling earlier this year, but there's a lot of guys that, that uh, are going to be in this program, assuming they stick around, that uh, CU fans are, are really going to enjoy watching here for, for a few years. Yeah, no, that pass breakup where he lunged up in the air and, and knocked it down with one hand. If he doesn't do that, that's, that's six. And that is an athletic play, and you just have to know body position to be to be where you can make a play like that. It was that was gorgeous, um, but it's we're seeing we're seeing more one on one coverages with guys with these young guys that I think we can really start to trust. And that is that's monstrous because especially if you're playing like that at this young, now you get a little bit more game time experience and, and see how fast that game goes, that opens up the defense to run really whatever they want because you, you're allotting more guys to a system. That's extremely encouraging on this side. And good, just going back to Brandon Rice, even when they were struggling, every time he touched the football, he, he ran with those kickoff returns Park. with a purpose. And, you know, he was battling. And a lot of those catches he made were in tight coverage. Uh, is that kind of infectious on a football team when you get a guy that, that is playing as, as, as tough and as strong as he is? I mean, it's, you know, sometimes those receivers can be uh, kind of prima donna types, but Red and Rice certainly seems to kind of have that aggressiveness that, that you really like to see at that position. Well, he's showing up on film regardless of the position, whether he's catching the ball, receiving, excuse me, catching punts or catching kickoffs, receiving, or blocking. I was extremely encouraged by the way he was blocking and throwing his body in front of defenders to, to let other guys make plays. Um, you're not going to see a lot of that. Most guys are looking for that ball, but but number two is getting in there and, and making his presence known. And we keep calling for leadership, right? We keep asking for somebody to show up and do the things on the field, in the locker room. And I think we're starting to see this blossom um, out of rice and keep it going, kid. Keep it going. The Buffs defense was better. Still not great without Lamin against Oregon State, but I went back last week, Ryan, and looked at it in the previous 10 quarters without Nate Lamin prior to that Oregon State game. CU's defense had given up 17 touchdowns, five field goals, and they only forced the opposition to punt the ball four times. 
And against Oregon State, and I guess you include those two overtime periods as well, they did give up four touchdowns and two field goals, but they did force four punts. So there's progress there. You know, you force four punts in 10 quarters without Nate, and then at least in this, you know, in the four quarters before overtime on Saturday, you forced four punts in in that amount of time. So, again, there's progress there. I kind of mentioned this in an article about the offense's improvements. You know, there, there's no parade scheduled to celebrate their performance, but I think we can at least give those guys a golf clap, right? I mean, there, there has been progress there. I, I, I agree. There's, there's been progress, but I also know or from watching the game is there's a couple of those third downs or those four, fourth downs that, that very much should have been TFLs. Um, and it's just a matter of guys getting washed over where if Nate's in there, I think Nate is putting his nose a yard in the backfield and maybe it's a little bit more. I'm I'm hoping we get him back. You know, but but they are definitely improving. The defense is definitely showing up and they are they've done a lot more bending instead of breaking, which is is great to see. We got asked multiple questions from fans about hey, who is calling the plays? Darren Cheverini is calling the plays. Uh, from everything we've heard, but game planning has been a collaborative effort. I do understand the fans' frustration that it took so long for the coaches to open up the playbook. But, the, you know, the way they have been a little bit more creative the last two weeks, I wanted to get your thoughts just on on what they've been doing play calling. Is it a substantial difference from what you saw earlier? I don't think this has been a giant change. What I think has happened is we've got some protection and we've gained some run game out of the O-line, number one. Number two, we have taken pressure off of the O-line to swing the ball wide. We've spread the ball out much more efficiently and we're, we're trying different things and we're moving on faster from them when they're not working. Um, the screen game is entirely mediocre at this point, but some of the jet sweep or nakeds are, are really opening up edges of the field, you know, where you were playing them into the boundary that I don't think we were doing before. And if we were doing it before edges were getting crushed and it allows you to open up so much more when you just have a little bit more time and protection. Uh, I haven't seen a drastic change in the plays that we've been calling, but we've just been more successful in what we've been calling. And, people are going to look at that under a microscope but when you have time to throw the ball in and blocks that are opening up that it's the same offense it just allows you to put a little you know check there uh, you change a route here or, or a counter there that that really turns a very simple offense into a couple more things to defend because you've set up the defense in such a way along those same lines wild buff asked whose offense is it anyways yeah it's it's oh. Not always black and white. Sometimes there's gray area here. But, I mean, you look at Darren Cheverini. Obviously, he came back to see you after spending time at Texas Tech. They were doing more spread stuff, uh, some more air raid stuff when he was originally the play caller back in 2018. Clearly, Carl Durrell has his stamp on this offense, doing stuff that he did back in the day. I guess guess when things are going wrong, people want to know specifically who they're going to blame. I think it's both Jarrell and Chevron you have been struggling. And so I guess you, you kind of praise both when things starts going a little bit better. Um, 
I don't know. My, my feeling from everything I've heard is it's kind of both those guys offense, which I don't know. I think I had said on a previous podcast that I think in a perfect world, you want Carl Durrell to find an OC and let him run it right. And as Carl Durrell, he's got enough on his plate as a head coach, focus on those other things. What are your thoughts just on term in terms of the ownership of the offense? Can it work with a head coach and an OC both kind of having their, their, their fingerprint on it? Or, or do you, do you like the thought of maybe having an OC that they can be given the keys and be able to drive that car without much meddling from the head coach? Yeah, I, I've always been of the mindset of kind of having a 95-5, right? OC has a job, right? Call plays and, and put the right personnel in to get things going. As a head coach, you manage the game and you manage the, the specialist stuff, right? The, the third and extra longs, the, the interesting situations at the end of a half. That's, that's how I, I think it should be done. Um, I've never been an OC or, or even tried to call plays, so that's not my forte. But teams that I've been a part of that have been successful, you hire coaches to do specific jobs, right? That's why you don't have one head coach and no position coaches. Um, I think, I think the offensive calling has been shared and split. I don't think it's been necessarily a bad thing, but I would like to see more of it be, if this is our identity, let's, let's commit to that and let, uh, KD worry about the situational stuff. Buff predictor asked beyond offensive line protection, what improvements are you both noticing in Brennan Lewis's play? What have you noticed there, Ryan? Oh, I could be here for a while. He he does not look like the guy that we saw early on in the year. Um, he's getting in more protection again, and that does does a myriad of things for your confidence level. He's making smart reads and throwing the ball away when he needs to. He's not trying to force anything as much. I think he's managing the game tenfold better uh, than earlier in the season. And if it's not there, it's not there. Uh, we're seeing a lot more shifts, shifts in motions, and that there's a there's a comfort level and a timing level there that that didn't used to be there. I'd still like to see us pick up the play clock or uh, our substitutions, but as far as managing a game, I think that's where his biggest stamp of approval is coming from. Is he's getting to the point where I know this, I've done this. If it if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you know, I I can handle this. And he's, he's making better decisions and that that's, we've asked a ton from him and I think he's done it more, more than what we've asked. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. Yeah. And the good thing too, is Carl Durrell said on Monday that he's still leaving a lot out there, which is, which is good, right? I mean, he's, there's still room for improvement with Brennan Lewis, but there's no question. He looks like a completely different quarterback out there right now. You kind of touched on this. Uh, he, he's not hesitating like he was er, earlier in the season. He was, still kind of making some smart decisions early in the season. He wasn't turning the ball over a lot, but when things were there, it was like Darrell even used the word words gun shy that he was, even when they were there, he was still hesitant. And now you're seeing, seeing him react much quicker than he was earlier in the year. And uh, with that, uh, you know, confidence that he's gaining out there, his moxie is really starting to show. That was a little bit of what we saw in the Alamo Bowl last December, and that's why people were so excited. Some of the intangibles, the stuff that you can coach that he can show when he's playing confident, 
And, uh, you know, a great example of that I thought on Saturday was play. I think it was Jake Wiley got beat inside late on that throw that he had to Montana Lamonius Craig, where he made a really nice move uh, to evade the pass rusher. Uh, I don't know if he would have done that early in the season. I think he would have turtled early in the season. But again, that that moxie is starting to show. I mean, there's no doubt that he's a resilient kid. I don't think a lot of quarterbacks could have had the struggles that he had earlier this season and not have it, you know, shatter their confidence. So kudos to him for blocking out all the criticism and coming back and working and getting better. Uh, again, Brian, I don't, I don't imagine most quarterbacks could have been able to, you know, maintain that confidence. Yeah, he definitely has a resiliency about him. And, and it's, it's growing. Um, that, uh, that TD pass after, um, oh gosh, I don't know if he would have thrown that. It's, you know, that, that is a, that's a tough pass to make. And with the scramble drill, that you don't know if he's if he's gonna throw that thing away or actually scan the field and he scanned the field and and found the open man so that's resiliency the the confidence level I think and I think he he's been given more of the keys keys of the car right this is I think he's beginning to see that he can he can be successful and we can be successful all all he's got to do is drive it right and I think gunshot is an excellent word for it I don't think he's gun shy anymore and i hope obi is able to carry that confidence that's that confidence swagger with him you know as he continues to grow and learn but again kudos to this kid right now i think he's shown enough improvement that you don't necessarily feel like you've got to go to the transfer portal for a quarterback i think a few weeks ago i would have thought they're definitely going to need to keep an eye on that transfer portal and obviously jt shroud who most likely would have won the, the job coming into the season until he hurt his knee is going to be back. And you, he's more of a pro style guy. So you'd assume even coming back from that injury, he'll be part of that quarterback competition. And you got Drew Carter coming back. They've got Owen McCown verbally committed from the 2022 class. So um, I don't know, you know, now I feel a little bit better about that position going forward. And uh, I think Lewis could potentially hold on to that starting spot. I definitely didn't think that way a few weeks ago. I uh, moved along here. Okay. Rob Robbo asked, "What changed on the offensive line specifically?" What do you think, Ryan? Five guys started the game. Five guys finished the game. Um, there may have been some subs in there. I know uh, we had some injury at the end, but we saw guys get on blocks and stay on blocks. Um, I think we saw some cohesion that that proved to be extremely applicable to getting those long runs out and, and broke and putting putting drives together. It, it's I would love to say it's this magic potion of guys playing Superman, but it was five guys that played together specifically is what I saw. And we gave some protection. We allowed the ball to get out. Uh, we had a couple of of penalties that that are agitating but we're eliminating we're doing the right things the small things right and controlling the game how they can control the game and we're getting hats on hats that that's what you want to see as an offensive lineman and the more these guys play together and they're put their hands in the dirt next to each other i think it's just going to get better 
Flatirons was asking about potential offensive coordinator and offensive line hires. I think it's a little bit too early for that discussion, but he also did ask, Ryan, are you comfortable with the idea of William Vallejos getting the offensive line coaching gig going forward? Uh, are you not? In, in my opinion, I, I don't know. I wouldn't go search somebody out right now when you've seen the change, an immediate change, that being sometimes you have to wait a whole five, six weeks before you really see a, a decent change in the O-line. We, that, this is one of the few times I've actually seen a coaching change and pretty, pretty immediate good feedback. Um, he's earned my stamp thus far, and I don't see any reason to, to change it at this point. It's jobs are getting done. Assignments are, are being corrected. And guys are playing with a lot better technique that I've seen in prior prior games. Yeah, and, and, and there are three more games left. And I can't imagine a job interview that matches what, you know, William Vallejos can show with this group. I mean, he's already shown it the last two weeks, but even these next three weeks, five weeks is quite a nice uh, sample size for Jarrell to look at when he's kind of uh, – you know, looking at that coaching position going forward. And maybe he does interview some other guys, but, you know, Vallejos, as long as uh, things don't just completely fall apart here the next three weeks, is going to be uh, at least getting an interview there. Uh, let's move along to the next question. DAB Buff asked, on the last possession in the fourth quarter where Colorado caused Oregon State to burn their timeouts by running up the middle, why didn't the Buffs try to take more time off the clock by having someone run around in the backfield with the ball for some extra seconds and then take a knee or have Lewis chuck it deep out of bounds with some air under it? Even if it was an incomplete pass, it would have taken precious seconds off the clock. So there's a flaw in what he's talking about here. There were still 27 seconds left when CU punted the ball away. So you can't run around the backfield for 27 seconds. You're going to get tackled before that. You can't throw the ball up in the air for 27 seconds. So yeah, obviously the ideal scenario would have been able to get a first down there and go into victory formation, but they weren't able to do that. So I didn't really have an issue with that. You're not going to throw the ball in that situation. Can you talk about, I mean, they're getting criticized for the fact that Oregon state was allowed to tie it up there at the end, but I can't imagine I mean, the criticism would have been tenfold had they uh, attempted a pass in that situation. So you had to get Oregon State to burn their timeouts there. Uh, but Darrell did take some blame for that. And he said during his press conference on Monday that it was a coaching error that they should have directionally punted right or left towards the sideline, uh, try to get it out of bounds rather than give them that return, which they return almost to midfield. Uh, so that that's – I agree with that. Um, they said initially they were thinking that knowing that Oregon State's going to try to block that punt, they just wanted to get the ball out. But with hindsight being 2020, if they had that opportunity again, they would have tried a directional punt it. Did, do you have any, any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, this, it's so fun to nitpick this stuff after the game has already happened, right? Have we known that Oregon State was able to kick a 60-yard to put in OT for crying out loud, you know? <laughs> Situational football, this is that 5% that, that the head coach, you know, needs to be an expert on is, can you try to run out the clock for 27 seconds? Yeah, sure, you can try. But that's a lot of time for a lot of bad things to happen. Um, in the heat of battle, you know, 
when that team's down, they're going to come for a block. You'd love to rugby style it or get something out. Um, ultimately, you want that first down, but I think you have to just execute what the what play is called. Um, the, even the the two minute drive where they're able to throw that little short pass to get out on the sideline. That's you're playing prevent defense, and ultimately, how do you how do you know that they're going to stop the clock to kick a field goal to put into OT. That's, these are all ifs and buts and canes and nuts, but you, you think you just have to stick with your gut at that point uh, and, and hope you're right. It's, it is a gamble, right? And a gamble that I think a lot of us were like, what is going on? Um, I had no idea they were going to throw it to that part of the sideline and, and try to kick a field goal. So how he calls this play versus that play, I we could go back and forth all day, but fact of the matter is you just need to act, execute on the play that is called. Yeah, Everett Hayes, Oregon State's kicker, his previous long before that kick was 48, 48 yards. So, I mean, okay. he bested that by 12 on that kick. And it, it was good from at least another five yards. He just got a hold yeah. of that ball. I mean, that's a once-in-a-lifetime kick for that kid. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> It brought back flashes of Mason Crosby, and that that kick actually tied Mason Crosby's best kick at Folsom Field, the 60-yarder. Mason Crosby was kind of a rock star when he was at CU. I don't think I've ever seen a kicker uh, get as much love from his teammates as as Mason did back in the day, and obviously uh, he's carved out quite the career for himself in the NFL. Let's move along to Padillac's question here. He asked, do you have any indication on whether they've put the hammer in the toolbox for the rest of the season? Obviously referring to Nate Landman, Carl Durrell said on Wednesday that uh, Nate is trying to get back in the mix. Uh, Durrell does not think he's quite ready. So I doubt that he's going to play at UCLA, but uh, based on what Carl Durrell said today, it would not surprise me if Nate Landman is out there when Colorado hosts Washington. And that's going to be, I guess you can't call it senior night. I think it's an afternoon kick, but for senior day, and that would be awesome. I was chatting with Brian Howell earlier today that, you know, last year when Nate Landman went down against Utah in his final, what we thought was going to be his final game at Folsom Field, there was no one in the stands. It would just be awesome if he's able to come back and play against Washington and, and have a proper send off. And I mean, he's a shoe in for the Buffalo Heart Award winner. I don't think there's any question about that. It'd be great to see him out there. Obviously, you don't want to risk his health, but it just, right, it goes to show you the, the type of competitor that Nate Lamon is. You've got so many of these guys that they opt out of bowl games because they're, they're going pro and Nate probably should be going, okay, I got to look towards my future here, but he just loves CU so much and loves competing so much that uh, he, uh, Darrell said that he's trying to negotiate with them to get back on the field. You, you love those kinds of guys. You absolutely love those kinds of guys. Um, Your heart still breaks for them because you see him on the sideline being an excellent sideline coach too. That's just the kind of kid that he is. Uh, I, I want him back selfishly. He, he brings a whole nother gear to, to that defense. Um, but at the same time, this man, I think is going to, has a very, very good opportunity to, to play on Sundays. Um, and health, health should come, you know, should come to the forefront in that. Yeah, no doubt. NoHoBuff05 asked, has Deion Smith passed Fontenot on the depth charts? 
Uh, he is not, I don't put a whole lot of stock into the jet chart they release each week, but Fontenot's still ahead of Deion Smith and Fontenot still had five carries on Saturday. The running back rotation is a little screwy to me at times. You had Broussard break off some big runs on Saturday and then we didn't see him for a while. Uh, I don't know. You've got to give these different backs carries. I don't know. There doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason to their running back rotation, though. Um, I guess it's it's challenging because you want to give Broussard a lot of carries, but you also want to give him rest. What, what do you think on just the, the way they've been rotating the backs this season? Well, earlier I'd say you have to go with the hot hand. Um, I trust Hagan to do what, what he does with those running backs. And right now I think uh, 23's got the hot hand. Um, and Fontenot is a very talented back as well. And, and he makes the most of the carries that he gets, I believe. But yes, what you're saying, I don't really understand this running back rotation. Um, it's not like we've got a traditional third down, you know, burly back or, or a speedster on the edge. It's, it's just kind of who's, who's available and who's ready. And, and without being on the sideline, who are, who are we to really know the whys of, of what's going on? Who's your daddy buff asked, what's the deal with the shot? Clayton, is he hurt academics moving on? Uh, he is injured. He had a minor procedure as the coaches described it. And Clayton has not played in more than four games. So he could redshirt this year, not lose any eligibility. I asked Darian Hagen if the homesickness thing was still a problem with Clayton, because that was something that he struggled with coming out from new Orleans last year. He's super close with his grandmother and his mother, but Hagen said that, that's not something that's still bothering him. So hopefully Clayton doesn't hit the portal and, and comes back and this year wouldn't count against his eligibility. He's a back with a, a bright future. But, uh, I mean, right now, I don't think there's any controversy there. Jarek Broussard's their best back and Fontenot's their second best back. And, you know, you can make a case Deion Smith's a better running back than a shot Clayton at this point. So, uh, again, I don't – I think that's not a huge issue with this team right now. That's certainly – uh, the furthest thing from uh, you know what, what was keeping them from winning games earlier. Wyo Buff asked, I know you can't speculate on specific players, but do you see us losing a few significant contributors to the portal? You know, everybody's going to lose guys to the portal now. It's a new college football, Ryan. Uh, I don't want to make any firm predictions here. I know there was rumblings about Brendan Rice when they were struggling, but I don't know. Every time Brendan Rice talks about – uh, being a buff, he, he talks about it with passion and he even said after the Cal game, look, we got to get this thing fixed this this year. So it's not a lingering issue next year. So he was already kind of talking about uh, his future in Boulder. So I don't know. I mean, it's hard to predict that stuff, but you're, you're going to lose guys to the portal now. I mean, everybody is. It's just kind of like I said, the, the new college football, uh, quite a bit different than when you were in college football, Ryan. But guys transfer even back when you were in college. Yeah, and it's despicable. Uh <laughs> Without you know showing my hand too much, I I'm not a huge fan of this transfer portal. If you commit to a college, you know, and I think the same way at coaches, right? If you commit to a, a a college and and you're there to invest in these young kids' lives, and the same thing with these young kids that are investing their time and their their effort to not only play football but get this education. I mean, this is, in my opinion, it's 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 like a marriage, man. You 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 sign that lot of intent. It's oh, it doesn't work out. Uh, that's part of growing up though. That's part of being committed to, to what you have to do. And I understand is that there are some extenuating circumstances, but if, 
if you're transferring just because you're not getting playing time, well, that's on you, bud. Um, yeah, I could get very colorful on the subject. I, I hope we don't lose kids to the transfer portal. Um, but it, it's inevitable. I think we've, we've made it so easy uh, and we've rewarded guys for this, for mediocrity that it, that it's okay to just, if you're not getting your playing time or you don't you know, absolutely love it, you make, you make this situation what it is. Um, so I'm, I'm going to leave it at that before I get really fired up about this. Fair enough. Betas Dead asked, why is Pasta J still in business? The food sucks. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, if everybody had Betas Dead's opinion on Pasta J's, they would not still be in business, but people like it. I mean, it's got a certain charm to it, Ryan. I, I like taking the family there every once in a while and uh, but I think the thing is with pasta jays, you got to like garlic, otherwise you're not going to like pasta jays. Well, I think you can, you know, I think I think this boy can be wrong. Um, I love pasta jay. Um, I think the Alfredo Williams should be offered any at any Italian restaurant, and I know some people think that's sacrilegious, but uh, chicken parm on Alfredo is absolutely delicious and delectable, and it's one of my favorite things to eat uh, ever. Period. Um, and, and it's it is it's very much a bolder thing, but I mean pasta J is is very much just a part of as part of the CU program as and some of these players. And I don't think a lot of people really understand how around that program pasta J is. I mean, for crying out loud, there's what nine guys with menu items uh, or menu options on the on the menu, I don't think the food sucks. Man, y'all are just trying to get me going today. Come <laughs> on now. Billy Alfredo Williams, I'll have to try that. I've always gone with the Hagen Trio, and uh, I think the stuffed shells are pretty awesome. It is funny, though. You, Like I said, there's so much garlic in that. I remember one time I had that for lunch, and then I went to go play pickup basketball later that day. And oh, that's, I, that's I, on I, you, bud. I, I, I stunk up that court, and I had to apologize for that. <laughs> That's I mean, you don't go get Italian. You can eat any Italian and then go play pickup basketball. That's not how it's supposed to work, bud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was doing okay. I was moving around the court, but it, it, that that garlic was coming through the pores, and it, it was not good. <laughs> if you were going to take an out of town or out for a meal in Boulder, Ryan, where, where would you go? Uh I would probably either go to Pasta Jays or um, I, I hope it's still there's the, the Boulder Chop House. Um, unfortunately, I think the Med is gone. I always loved yeah. the Med. Uh, I, I heard a rumor that of, somebody was going to uh, take over the Med, reopen it, and kind of keep everything the same. I haven't heard anything new on that lately, but I hope that does happen. Yeah, there's – I mean, the Chop House always did a really good job. I think Pasta Jay does a good job. Uh, I don't even think – well, Harpo's was gone. A long time ago, but there used to be an excellent wing joint um, called Harpo's, and I loved taking. I loved going there because they had that sports bar feeling, and they had really good, really good wings. and And I'd say Lazy Dog too. Golly, this is a hard one. Um, yeah, I think Lazy Dog. Chop House, right? Oh, don't tell me that. Man. I'm googling that right now. Oh, maybe I'm wrong here. Right? Uh, no, yeah, I think it's it's shut down in Boulder. There's still a couple locations, but not in Boulder anymore. But, but what, what were the other ones you well, mentioned? Uh, 
the chop house and and pasta jays is okay. where I would have would have taken them. Yeah, I I really I have quizzed everybody that hate hates pasta jays, and I, I say, do you like garlic? And most of the people that don't like it say no. So I think that might be kind of the common thread there. But uh, no, I've always enjoyed it. You're right, though. Uh, you, you gotta you gotta plan your trips there when you're not going to be doing any activities where you're sweating after work. Buffet yeah. Z, Buffet Z asked, uh, "What caused higher-rated four-star basketball recruits to start signing with the Buffs?" So we got a CU men's basketball question here. I won't spend too much time on this, but uh, you know, certainly sustained success has helped with Tad Boyle and uh, just the stability even with his staff, you know, guys like Mike Crone that have been there for a long period of time. And they certainly worked their butts off virtually during the pandemic shutdown to put together that class that ranked number one in the Pac-12. But it needs to be put in context a little bit because CU was one of only two Pac-12 teams that signed five or more prospects. So that helped them with the recruiting rankings. The more guys you sign, you know, the, the higher up you're going to work the list. And uh, none of CU signees last year were ranked higher than 64th nationally. So it's not like they were bringing in McDonald's All-Americans all of a sudden. Uh, but uh, even look back, I mean, Boyle did sign six four-star recruits prior to that 2021 class. So it's not like it's been unheard of for him to land highly regarded recruits. But it's a great situation. Maybe Lawson Lovering develops into an NFL talent. But, you know, these true freshmen, the guys that are in that program, while they're very talented, they appear to be guys that are going to be in college for four years. So this year, it's going to be an up and down roller coaster ride. There's going to be some nights you're pulling your hair out. Last night, their season opener made you excited and want to pull your hair out at times. It was that's going to be it's going to be kind of a microcosm of the season. But they're going to be guys that are in this program for a long time. So you can kind of watch their development and not worry that they're going to be bolted to the NBA in a year or two. So that, that that's what's great about this class that was highly regarded, yet these guys are going to stick around. Have you ever been to a CU basketball game? I have. And it was not something that I thought I would enjoy as much as I did. Um, the CU basketball, that new, the, the event center, uh, being in cores, that's another atmosphere that is is unique to Boulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus that, I mean, that training center is absolutely gorgeous. Holy cow. Um, when I was there, you know, I wasn't a huge basketball player, but we'd go and, and see facilities and whatnot. And it just, some of these facilities, man, they just, they blow it out of the water. And I think on top of the success that the Tad has had in the PAC 12 uh, and, you know, we, we have got some, some signature wins and some, some good wins over good, good teams why not have a you know be able to recruit like that and Tad's an excellent recruiter he's an excellent guy to talk to just makes you feel like a great person too and so nice and but at the same time a hell of a coach uh it, it's an exciting it's, it's just exciting to be around CU for for basketball for football and to see what and what I think we've got this underdog role that we can really take take control of and, and wow some people consistently yeah, I think Tad Boyle could teach a class for other coaches at the college level on just how to deal with the media. And, and you know, he does it. He holds people accountable, but he doesn't throw people under the bus. And he, like you said, he when he talks to you, he's not looking down his nose at you. And he, you know, just the, the way he interacts with people is top notch. And uh, you know, it's been a blast 
covering him here the, the last 12 years as their men's basketball coach. The football team, they head back out on the road to face off against, I think you could, it's fair to call UCLA a Jack one Hyde type team. CU is one in seven all time in road games against UCLA with their last win in the Rose Bowl taking place back in 2002. That was actually the year before Carl, Carl Durrell took over as the Bruins head coach. Ryan, what are your thoughts here? What will you want to see from the Buffs on Saturday as they hit the road and take on the Bruins? I want to see more of the same. I want to see consistency. I don't think we have to have Superman players out here. Um, we've shown that we can we can play we can play well, uh, and as long as we stay consistent and, and play within play within ourselves, I, I think I still think that we can beat every team that we play here. Uh, Lewis is continuing to get better. Our receiving core is really kicking butt right now. The defense is is throttling up and making stops. It's everything's coming together in November, which is exactly when you want it to happen. Um, and I think we've got some confidence and some swagger coming back. There are years past where I don't think we win that Oregon State game. I think guys tank, and they did not tank, and that is extremely empowering. Uh, I was thrilled to see that. So, with, as long as we we keep doing the same things, I think we got a shot. I shot the preview video for the UCLA game with Brian Howell earlier today. That'll be up on buffstampede.com later this week. Got a uh, Q&A coming up with a UCLA writer. And then Sean Niehoff is going to have his UCLA preview up. I think it's going to go up on Friday morning. So lots of coverage looking ahead to that game. Ryan, I appreciate you for coming on the podcast again. It was uh, nice to finally talk about another CU win. And uh, like you said, uh, hopefully we can see a repeat performance and uh, you see this program, this young program, continue to make those strides. And, uh, you know, bowl eligibility is still on the line. I think it's it's tough to talk about that with too much uh, seriousness right now because you've got three games left and Utah is sitting there at the end of the season. But, uh, Ryan, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Adam, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right. And thanks to all of you for tuning in.